Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. So who is Steffi Cohen? Tell us, tell us your story. Damn, man, that's a, that's a, such a hard question to answer that broadly, but, um, let me see where I start. I'm, I guess I'm most known for being really strong. Um, I competed in powerlifting for about five to six years. Prior to that, I was in, always involved in strength, well, not always, but involved in strength sports in some capacity through CrossFit and Olympic weightlifting. Um, but I guess like my claim to fame, so to say, is that I can deadlift over four and a half times my body weight. That's kind of like how my social media got a lot of exposure. Um, outside of that, I'm a physiotherapist. I have a degree in a doctorate degree in physical therapy. I'm a business owner. I have I'm the co-owner of four different businesses that well the core one is called Hybrid Performance Method, which is essentially a software that's designed to distribute online workout programs in an accessible and affordable way uh, to make strength training accessible and affordable to everyone. And on top of that, we've built several other businesses like nutrition coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching. We have about 10 coaches that we've trained to be under us to take on clients. Um, two different apparel brands, one called Hybrid Legacy and, well, and one called Scandal, which is my own personal one. Uh, and then podcasts, YouTube videos and, and uh, education channels, which is kind of my latest project that I'm developing. It's It's master classes about everything. We have powerlifting, weightlifting, uh, building habits. We're about to drop a um, media for dummies course that my head media Caesar Lorca developed. Um, what else do we have coming up? Some boxing stuff even. And just, you know, for me, it's a really important part of what we do is the education component, kind of like that no BS approach to learning, just debunking myths and, and um you know, making sure that people are woke, essentially, how the kids nowadays say. And that's it. I guess I'm an immigrant. I come from Venezuela. I moved here when I was 17, initially with the dream of becoming a professional soccer player. I played pro soccer back home for about five years for the national team and moved here with a soccer scholarship that I didn't end up pursuing and just focused on school and then the rest became me. So I'm going to have to ask this because most people have the excuse of like, oh, I don't have enough time to do X, Y, Z because they have a nine to five job. But you have like seven nine to five jobs. And I'm just curious because when we get down to it, I, I, you know, motivation is a fleeting thing and everybody can say, oh, I don't have the motivation. Well, most of the time, the most successful people don't have motivation almost most of the time. Right. So I'm just curious what, what's really getting you going, because It, from my perspective, you are super successful in everything you do. And some people can actually be complacent with that success. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people rely too much on their emotions to do or not to do things. And it's it's an incorrect approach because your your emotions fluctuate so much based on what's happening around you. So you can't really rely on that in order to get stuff done. So 
people love to talk about discipline. Discipline is great. Obviously, you do need that in order to stick with your goals, but it sounds pretty militant for me. I like to use the word principles better. So basically what that means is, you know, living by principles means that you have essentially a set of rules or laws, however you're going to call them, for you personally, that you just live by whether, you know, they, they play a role in your in your professional decisions, they play a role in your relationships, play a role in your spiritual mindset, in everything. Um, and they're individual to, to each one of us based on the goals that we're trying to attain. Um, and the way that I see, I honestly see them, those principles more as laws because you can't allow yourself to break them because that way you're essentially training yourself to um, to give way to your emotions, right? So I always say how you do one thing is how you do everything. So if you get into the habit of not doing something that you said you were going to do, something that's a principle, something that's really important to you, then you start getting into that, you know, you, you start cutting yourself slack and then that's when you don't adhere to your your goals or the things that you need to do in order in order to achieve your goals so yeah to, to summarize that is not living based on emotion living based on principle and and sticking to those principles no matter what so what would you say are the top core principles that you personally live by um it depends on what area of my life but for example when it when it came to school when i was getting my doctor degree I set a principle of waking up a certain time and making sure that I'm reviewing my notes every day, making sure that I'm paying attention in class and in, in, in having my own summary guides, making sure that every day after school at 5 p.m. I spent at least two hours at the library, you know, stuff like that. For, for athletics or for sports, it's always been to never skip a training session, no matter how I feel. Obviously, there's I have pneumonia. I'm not going to go to the gym or have COVID. I'm not going to go infect everyone. There's... There's logical kind of uh, exceptions, but for the most part is, you know, doing what you can with what you have at any given day. You know, there's many times that I, for example, didn't feel like going to the gym, but I still went and did something, even if it's, even if it's going there for two minutes, that to me is already a win. You know, if, if I allowed my feelings to, to, to overcome my discipline on that given day and I don't even show up. That just sets a precedent that can catapult you on a on a this like negative feedback loop of just always doing that right when you don't feel like it. So, yeah, I guess it depends on on different areas of my life, on friendship, on relationships, loyalty, you know, trust, respect. Those are principles that I really value that I don't break no matter what. If you tell me a secret and you tell me, hey Steph, please don't tell anyone, not even Hayden, not even your mom. You can be sure that I'm not gonna tell anyone. You know, that I'm gonna forget you even said it. So, guess they vary based on based on what area of my life. Let me open the door for this asshole. <laughs> Dogs. That's the uh, infamous dog that I always hear in all your episodes. <sighs> Ruining my audio on everything. <laughs> everything. Now, when it comes to crafting a law or a principle for yourself, it's it's easier said than done, right? I, I mean, I can tell myself, hey, I'm going to go to the gym and I can easily break it as well. But it's clear to me that you don't break these principles because they're rooted in something. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious. So how did you actually come up with these laws? It's based on the ultimate goal. 
So obviously the principles about going to the gym, never skipping the gym, giving it your best effort, having a good attitude, like, you know, all of those are my principles on, on the athletic side. Um, those are the things I absolutely need to nail in order to break a world record. You know, nobody wor- breaks a world record with a half-assed effort. You know, you're either all in or you're, or you're not in at all. So same in grad school, you know, grad school, was super tough for me and there's no way I could have gotten through it if it wasn't because I had such a deep rooted set of principles that I 100% abided by and I actually I actually felt the 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 consequences and lived the consequences of not sticking to those principles my first semester of grad school I got kicked out of school because I got a 74 in an exam and you need at least 75 to 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 stay in your program in every single test so, man, I, you know, I slept. I, I remember I remember the week of that exam. I'm like, oh, that exam is, is easy. That class, I don't even need to review my notes. It was one of those really easy classes, not, not one of the hard ones that everybody fails at. And I just kind of, you know, winged it and then got a letter in the mail saying that thank you but no thank you, that you've been dismissed from, from the program and that you had to write an appeal and sit in front of the uh, uh, committee of academic review, which is like 15 prof- of like the top dog professors that sit around in a, in a round table and pretty much question you as a student. And I had no, like, I've never been in a situation like that. And that was eye opening for me. You know, I was definitely slacking. I was prioritizing uh, sports. I was prioritizing my, my Olympic weightlifting at that time and my social life and, you know, those were the consequences. So, man, talk about like the ultimate like reality check when you walk into a room and there's just a board of people just ready to send you home and you have to just like defend your case. Dude, it was brutal. They were, I will never forget this one professor was like, Steph, honestly, I think you're going to have to choose between being a student or being an athlete because we don't think that you're qualified to do both because we don't think you're as strong as a student as you think you are. Damn. I was like, ow, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. And I said, I said, honestly, Dr. Fibert was his name. With all due respect, I, I can appreciate why you might think that, but that's just not the case. You know, I'm, if you give me a chance, I'll prove that I can be, I can absolutely be both. I just made one mistake, not taking this one class seriously, but you can be sure that, that this won't happen again. And it didn't, you know. But, yeah, it was a massive reality check. Go, okay, so you mentioned sports and breaking uh, world records, and you you've got more than twenty world records in the powerlifting world. So, if you're basically the the, the god of women's powerlifting, why did you change to boxing right now? What's the ultimate goal with boxing? Okay, so there's many reasons there as to as to why the change. I talk a lot about quitting and the importance of of strategic quitting at the right time. You know, there's essentially there's there's let me give you a background story. So my entire life, I've been the type of person that it gets to a point where somehow I can identify that it's time for me to move on to the next thing, you know, and that's called strategic quitting. For a long time, I didn't know that was a thing and got called out by my parents, by my grandparents, by my uncles, by ex-boyfriends telling me that I'm a quitter, that I never stick with things, that I get bored easily and honestly, I almost believed it, you know, that that was a kind of like a character flaw of mine. 
but I kept having so much success with everything. I chose the right career, even though I, it took me five years to graduate college and taking classes every single summer. So I wouldn't even take a vacation because I would be so far behind on my credits because I changed her. I changed majors five times or six times, you know? Um, but look, it worked out well. I, I eventually ended up choosing a major that suited my abilities as a person, as a human, as a student, and that aligned with my ultimate goals, right? Um, same goes with sports. I did change a bunch of time sports, but look at where I ended up. I ended up in powerlifting, breaking 25 world records, being the best lifter in the world, pound for pound. So it's like, yeah, I know it's unconventional, but I have to be doing something right in an unconventional way, right? So when it comes to quitting, switching sports, let's talk about powerlifting, boxing. You know, strategic or reactive quitting is when you essentially encounter a dip, you know, or you meet a resistance and and you just give up because things got really difficult. You know, that's reactive quitting. That's what most people do or they get tired of 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 doing a certain thing or they think they run out of options and then they quit. And then there's reactive or strategic quitting which is when you really objectively, you know, weigh the efforts that you're putting in and the outcome that you're getting from those particular efforts. And you can really objectively think about, you know, have I, have I given it everything that I have? Have I invested all the time, energy resources that I have available to me into continue progressing in this one thing? Um, do I think that I have the, 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 the ability, the skills that the, the talent that is required in order to, take myself to the next level is my competition way better than me and I have just no chance at ever being like that because I don't have xyz for example I'm not six foot seven feet tall I'll never be a basketball player you know that's definitely something that is it's, it's a fair reason why not to pursue a, a basketball career for example so when it came to lifting for me it got it there were there were a couple of things one it was the challenge I didn't feel challenged anymore. I felt like I had already kind of mastered the the skill and the technique of of the movements of powerlifting. I didn't feel like I could really ex- explore and, and 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 expose my athleticism and really use it, you know, in the ways that I like using it. Um, and then it was just my body felt really beat up. So Obviously, all of those are things that I could have overcome. You know, I could have figured out a way to, to modify my training in a way that suits my aged body. I could have figured out a way to make my training more interesting, maybe changing my training environment. So I definitely could have kept going. But at the same time, I really, my brain needed, a, my brain needed another challenge. And nothing during the lockdown uh, in March, April last year, I put up a, a heavy bag in my garage, started hitting it, bought myself a pair of gloves and really fell in love with the art of boxing. Just everything that everything that boxing is, you know, there's the IQ, the ring IQ that you need to have, like being able to predict what your opponent is going to do several moves ahead, being able to try to figure out what their game plan is, adjust your game plan in real time with no help because it's just you in front of the other person. Um, all the footwork, um, all the coordination that it requires, the reactions, you know, from to avoid punches, the conditioning, the strength, the power, the rotational power. It was just 
so many things that 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 I would would have loved working on and that that I could that I could really felt like I could showcase my athleticism in this one particular sport. And then the second part was I've always wanted to participate and excel at a mainstream sport. You know, yeah, I was the best pound for pound pound for pound powerlifter in the world, but I never felt like I was a professional athlete. You know, I was nothing against powerlifter powerlifters, nothing against powerlifting meets, but it's not the most professional environment out there. You know, like if you've ever been to a powerlifting meet, it's like, you know, the coaches in the back in the back are like wearing freaking Havaiana slippers and like shorts and like torn t-shirts. Like I'm a, I'm an elite level athlete and I have to share the I have to share the the warm-up room with that. Like I just don't accept it. I really don't, you know? That's not what I had in mind or what I envisioned when I thought of myself as being a professional athlete. So I really was I, I really was craving something that had an organization and that had standards and that had um, media and that had, you know, real pay that I could get compensated fairly for the damage that I'm inflicting on my body every day and the efforts and the sweat and the frustration that I'm going through every day. So it was a lot of things that was, that was a long winded answer, but I hope that answers it. That's perfect. You know, so this, I've always wondered this and now this is the perfect opportunity, you know, so you watch Rocky and this guy's in the snow and he's in the barn, he's training all these crazy ways, or you think about karate kid where he's waxing on, waxing off. You're like, I can't believe I'm I'm not learning karate. And then the second, you know, it, he knows everything about karate because he's been doing these tasks. And I'm just curious because like boxing kind of follows that same pattern. I'm just wondering, you know, from you who knows how to program is very well tuned when it comes to like progressive overload and all the strength principles. Uh, did you ever like maybe do an exercise and you thought to yourself like, this is stupid. And then you like, and later you're like, I just got Mr. Miyagi. I can't believe I know how to do like a cross. You know what I'm saying? When it comes to boxing specifically? Yes. Yeah, of course, especially because I was brand new into that world. So I'm really skeptical naturally. So anything that's anything that was being told to me, especially at the beginning, I questioned. And I was like, why? You know, I remember my coach had me, um, he would put like a um, wrap, a hand wrap from one corner to the other of my garage. And he would have me for an hour straight just do bob and weave, bob and weave, bob and weave. And I'm like, are you? This is not going to teach me how to bob and weave in a fight. This is so stupid. He's like, trust me, trust me, trust me. And I would do it. Like, I would resent him so much. I get so pissed internally. <laughs> I had so much anger for, like, all of those little drills. And then one time during sparring, I bobbed and weaved, slipped, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? that I started understanding the whys of a lot of things as, you know, as I gained more experience. See, that's that that's the cool thing about sport performance where I guess like I, if you look at a lot of the research out there and it, it kind of just like almost like black and white, like, you know, full range of motion is going to be more uh, beneficial to short range of motion, stuff like that. But like when you get into sports performance, there's like stuff that maybe wouldn't make sense in a research setting. But then, as you said, like a thousand reps of doing a certain activity, it's going to be ingrained, you know. For sure. Have you have you ever uh, read the book or, or heard about the book Chop Wood, Carry Water? No. Yeah, that's honestly one of the best books that I've ever read on this topic. I have notes about it in, in my notebook. I love it and I, I gift it a lot. It's, a, it's one of the books. That one and uh, The Obstacle is Away are my two most, or the great, two books yeah. that I gift out the most. 
But we chop wood, carry water. It's exactly about that. It's actually about a guy who moves into a monastery or, yeah, a monastery or a temple, and he wants to become an archer, a professional archer. And he's there for, I think, I think it was like 30 years. He was there trying to learn how to be a master of archery. And I don't think he even grabbed a bow until like the very end of like that stay. And the lessons was the lessons were on chopping wood and carrying water. Like he would have like this super monotonous task of just like chopping wood all day or carrying water from one end to the other. And he would try to cheat it by like bringing, you know, bigger bowls, but then would end up like, um, uh, spilling the bowls before he got there. And, you know, it takes you through the whole kind of mindset that you need to have in order to have full mastery of one thing. And, and it's so interesting because I, I, cons- I, I resonated, it resonated, that's where it resonated with me so much because in the comparing sports to sports, powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting are two of the most mundane sports that you could possibly do. It's honestly for insane people because it really is. Sometimes I went into the gym and I just thought to myself, I might as well just crack my skull open against this wall because this is the same thing I'm doing, you know? I'm, it's so frustrating that I'm giving it my all. I'm giving everything that I have. I slept nine hours. I ate, I hydrated myself. I meditated. I have a sports psychologist and I'm coming in here and I didn't even improve my squat by one pound, like on test week or whatever. And it's so frustrating. And then you have to like go back to the drawing board and then again, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water until one day you have like a breakthrough. Right. And that's life. That's life. That's how, you know, being a master of the mundane and, and, and understanding that in order to fully master something, you have to do a million reps. Yeah, for some people it's 5,000, for some people it's 10,000, for some people it's 20, 30, 100, a million, you know? So how, how long are you willing to stick with the mundane to actually see if you, if you can make it? You said chop wood, carry water? Yeah. I am going to read that now. It's so good. It's, it's so heartwarming. Now, I, I am curious because you mentioned that you have a sports psychologist and as somebody like yourself who's like very high achieving in the sports world, I'm assuming there's some sorts of pressures that come to you, maybe anxiety. Um, I'm curious on is is it the same sports psychologist from the powerlifting world to now boxing? Because yeah. I'm assuming you already have a great relationship with this person. I'm just curious if this person's implementing different tactics now that you're in a combat sport. Yeah, it's the same guy. His name is Patrick Alban. Um, of course there's, there's different strategies and different tactics only because I'm struggling with different things, you know? So I'm like encountering different problems going from, you know, you train and then you just go lift in front of people and you either get the lift or you don't get the lift to going to a, a situation that's a lot more uncertain and that has a lot more variables and that has a lot more, um, honestly, there's a, there's a lot bigger of a downfall to not achieving, you know, to not winning a fight because you have a team behind you. So I honestly, boxers, I don't know how familiar you guys are with combat sports, but especially boxers, there's so much money in that industry, so much, like I'm talking millions of dollars, right? It's a really serious industry and it's, it's cold blooded. Like people are out there to fucking kill. So when you have a team, you know, your team consists of your coach, your assistant coach, 
um, and then your manager. Those are the three people. And they every each one of them gets a cut of your pay, a percentage that you negotiate. So at that point, you know, you're essentially their property. You know, you're you're essentially like a racehorse that they're grooming, you know, every day. They're investing their energy into you and their time into you, and they're expecting you to have a certain outcome, right, and to get certain fights and continue going up the rankings so that, you know, you can hopefully uh, fight for a title or fight for a, a fight to get $10 million or $20 million or who knows, right? So it's kind of like a, an investment that they're putting in you for the future. So the pressure that comes with that, you know, it's not like a powerlifting meet where, yeah, are people expecting me to show up and lift a lot? Yeah, but that's it. There's no other expectation. If I don't want to go, I'm not letting anyone down except for myself. I'm not, you know, I don't have to apologize to anyone except for myself. Whereas with this, like the pressure is so big because you develop such deep ties with your coaches. You know, in, in martial arts, there's there's so many ways of doing things and people end up being from like different houses. You know, they don't expose their, their strategies to one another. It's not straightforward like like lifting weights, progressive overload and, and exercise variation and undulation and whatever periodization. It's a lot more complex. So yeah, it, it really feels like, you know, you have like a master and he's teaching you all of his tips and tricks that he's learned throughout his years and years of coaching several fighters that have made it to the Olympics and titles and whatnot. And you're this little kind of like sponge. You're trying to grab everything and you're trying not to let this person down and there's a lot to lose. So of course, when it comes to sports psychology, you know, it, that's one of the things that I'm struggling the most to, I guess, to manage um, along with obviously some competition anxiety stuff of just being under the lights and, and facing some, facing something, someone that is going to actually want to inflict pain on me as well. And then I'll have to inflict pain on because that's also hard. So, yeah, different strategies depending on the, the struggle, I guess. You know, that that brings me to my next question. Like when it comes to all this pressure and all right, so you came from a sport where I'm sure you programmed your own, you know, your own programs. You were in control of your process. You probably had some outside help, but you welcomed it right now. You're in a circumstance where like you said, you're like almost their property. You're their racehorse where they're controlling probably every aspect. So you don't have to worry about that. So you can just focus on you. Now, how does that feel? Because I feel like that's a polar opposite. Yeah, it is. Um, it's both relieving and also scary. You know, it's relieving because, yeah, I can just focus on being an athlete and, and shut my brain off and just show up to training, do what I'm told to do, leave, come back to it all over again. And then obviously there's my kind of the skeptical side of me that always is wondering if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm with the right people, if, you know, this is the right route. Um, and, and obviously the opinions of other people around me, like I've, that's happened many times when people have come up to me and been like, oh, I don't think, you know, that's not the right coach for you. Oh, that, that drill is silly. I don't even know why he's doing that drill. Like he shouldn't be doing that with you. You don't need to work on that or whatever. So obviously, yeah, there's, there's some level of doubt, but you know what? Like the coach that I'm training under, I, I have so much trust and faith in him. His name is Pedro Diaz and he trained the, uh, the Olympic Cuban team for 30 years. He's made just so many, uh, so many world champions and Olympic athletes. He's trained so many 
high-level people, uh, Soto, freaking Rigondeau, a bunch of others that I don't know if you guys will know, but really impressive curriculum and background when it comes to being a coach and extremely well-respected. So I trust his judgment, and I think that's the most important thing. I think that believing that something will work is the most important thing. Like no matter what you're doing, there's such a big kind of mental aspect, almost like you're placeboing yourself that something's going to work. If you believe it, you know, that's that's half the battle. If you start doubting and you don't think that something's going to work, then it's a problem because it actually might not. Now, I know that you haven't been boxing for a long time, and this might be a stupid question, but I'm curious. Don't you feel bad inflicting pain on someone? Like, when you knock someone out, does the human uh, does the human inside you, like, think something, or you're just, like, sports mode? I'm here to kill you. Oh, my God. You know, I thought I'd feel bad, especially my last opponent. She was so cute. You know, she was, she was such a cute girl, man. And and uh, before the fight, I felt slightly bad about what was going to happen because I knew I was going to knock her out. And But then the first time, because I had never, that was my first time hitting someone without headgear because all of your sparrings are headgear on. And that was my first time hitting someone with eight-ounce gloves. I'd never worn eight-ounce gloves before, and I had never hit someone or been hit without a head guard. And that first, I think it was a, like the cleanest punch that I connected early on in the first round was a uh, check hook like from afar and it connected right here on her cheek and it felt so good. I'm like, <laughs> it. I'm in here to kill. I don't know. There's a, probably like an evolutionary thing there, you know, that, that makes that feel good when you're, when you're, when you think you're, or when you're perceivably in danger, but yeah, it's not for everybody. You know, I, I remember, look, the first time I sparred out here in my, in the street with my coach, um i remember he hit me once and i loved it it was like such an adrenaline rush you know i started laughing and i was like damn that's sick i love that and i think that's kind of uh the, when when the fork in the road starts up whether are you a fighter or are you not a fighter you know are you able to keep your cool and be completely unaffected by somebody hitting you in the face or are you a bitch right 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 <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it's like boxing is kind of like a sport for para masoquista <laughs> <laughs> kind of so is powerlifting i think powerlifting is even more <laughs> oh my god when when it comes to like combat sports you always hear the phrase of uh, flow right people need to enter a state of flow so they're not really in their own heads they're just kind of reacting um this is a perfect person to ask, like, are, are you trying to enter this state of flow or like, does it happen when you're in, in the moment where the lights are shining on you? You have to enter the state of flow for certain things. For example, like for your, like your actual punching, you know, when you're in the ring, you're not thinking, okay, I'm going to pronate my hand. Now I'm going to twist to the side. You're, those are things that should already happen automatically, which is why you drill really specific combinations. So, so that the way I think about boxing is like, you have your coach, right? And your coach gives you like a set of cards, like really five, five or six of them that you, that you drill. So it's like, okay, this one is going to be the combination of uh, five, three, five. So every, every punch has a number and usually coaches have different numbers for different bunches. So the other coach doesn't know, right? So this one's five, three, fives. And this one you're going to do when the, when the fighter's moving towards your left. Got it. Okay. This one's going to be one, two, one when the person's moving backwards, right? Cool. Got it. 
this one's going to be like that, right? And they give you these combinations that you drill over and over and over during your individual time. So every fighter at my gym has individual practice times. That's just one-on-one -on -one with a coach really early in the morning when there's no one there. Or sometimes he even takes us like outside in the park so that you have like, you're really, really focused on what he's saying. And then you drill that like all through the camp, eight, eight to 12 weeks. You're just working on, really working on those five, six combinations that should be that's where the flow comes like that should be automatic you know you get a you get a body shot on the right boom you throw your uppercut you get a um a hook to the a hook to the left hand boom you respond with your with your left hook so all of those things are things that should happen automatically in a state of flow but the rest you need to be so aware like it's such a mentally taxing uh exercise and sport because it's all strategy and tactic all strategy and tactic. You got to be three moves ahead from your opponent. You have to actually think about what is it that you want to do. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched a boxing uh, boxing match, but there's sometimes when one of the fighters literally does absolutely nothing for a round, like just stays there. Maybe it's evading punches. Maybe it's just blocking. Maybe it's pairing, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, the hand that he's waiting for, he's waiting for the person to throw their right hand and boom, they slip, bah, uppercut, knocks the guy down. That's what they were waiting for. That was, a that was a tactic that he had in mind. So you have to have in mind, okay, what am I waiting for? How am I going to counter that? What's my game plan? It's not just going there and brawling. You know, high-level boxing is, is tactic strategy. It's more similar to, to chess. You know, it's kind of like a mix between chess and poker. Because there's also probability, but it it makes me so. Uh, Raul has heard me say this before, but it's like you look at the greats, right? In any sport, they have drilled the the fundamentals so much that it kind of frees up their headspace. Where you said it, like you're in a state of flow where you've drilled the fundamentals. Now you freed up that headspace to be focusing on the actual game that you're exactly. in, you know, versus the actual, like, cause you're in a fight, sure, but like you know, there's tactics and strategy behind it. So now that you have this gut or visceral reaction to a certain counter boom now you're thinking about what you can do next would you agree with that 100 percent, 100 percent. that's interesting now you mentioned that you uh you have spe specific counters or, or or punches for when you're reacting to your opponent i'm assuming that changes according to your opponent correct um i guess so you know yes yes and no i think that those counters are pretty universal to the punches being thrown at you um but this, this, I guess the combinations then would change based on the person, right? Like if you're fighting a taller fighter that's really long, there's some combinations that are not going to work unless you get really deep into the pocket. So then the combination has to include a punch that gets you close or that gets you in close range into that pocket so that you can actually get it. So yeah, they, they try like on sparring sessions, you try to get a sparring partner that most closely resembles your opponent. So like for me, I just flew someone in from from South America to be my sparring partner for two weeks. Like I had to pay for their flight, their accommodations, their food here, you know, to be for them to be part of my camp. You know, I needed a girl that fit a certain mold. Just I couldn't find anyone here local in Florida. Everyone's so tall and long and I'm fighting <laughs> someone that's not. So So when's your next big fight? It's uh, September eighteenth. They, it was supposed to be in Jacksonville, and now they moved it to Dubai. What? What? So, I know. Wow. <laughs> That's a massive change. It's uh, pretty drastic, if you ask me, but um, it is what it is. Travel regulations, COVID, that kind of stuff. 
Right, right. Now, not to change drastic gears here, but I, I, you know, you wrote a book and we have to at least talk about it because Raul and I, we wrote like a very small ebook because we're getting a lot of questions about like the same things. You're like, oh, let's just like cut, you know, let's streamline this process and make a book about it. You have wrote, actually written a real, real book. And I'm curious about the trials and tribulations that you went through to, to make this thing. Honestly, mine, my, the process for mine was pretty smooth, to be honest with you. So I started writing that book when I was in, in grad school. Actually, listen, I didn't even intend to write that book. So I was going myself through through pretty bad back pain with powerlifting and stuff. And I thought I had access to kind of the best minds in physical therapy. You know, my school is ranked number eight in the world, you know, has some solid PTs that work with team sports and whatnot. Um, and luckily I had financial freedom to go seek whatever treatment, whatever person I wanted. And I went to so many different people. And my disappointment was in the fact that there was such a, uh, there were so many conflicting opinions and conflicting views, views and, and plans that it really left me with a really kind of sour taste in my mouth in the sense that I thought, and this is my fault. And I think it's everybody's fault as well. Like we place so much um, trust in people who are in positions of power and authority, whether it's a DPT, a Cairo or an MD, we think that they are like, they know it all, you know, and at the end of the day, they're humans as well. I was just talking to Hayden about this medical errors are the fourth leading cause of death. Why do you think that is? It's because Dr. Khan freaking went back home and had an argument with his wife and probably didn't sleep at night and then came to the hospital, put his uh, his uh, scrubs on and made an error, you know, because he was thinking about the argument he had. We forget that that those people in positions of power are also human and they don't have all the answers, right? So I guess when I had a problem, I expected to go in there and, and being told a straightforward um, answer or being given a straightforward plan that was going to take my pain away, like fix my back kind of thing. And nothing was working, you know, so I bounced from practitioner to practitioner and, and nothing really was working. And that's kind of what led me into that, the spiral of trying to figure it out on my own. And just, I really wanted to understand why there were such conflicting views on low back pain and why, why, why was there such a big discrepancy between uh, therapists? So I started doing my own research. And like actual research, like up opening PubMed, not the research that people think they do when they open Cosmopolitan. Yeah, or Google. Yeah, like actual. And yeah, so I just started gathering a bunch of uh, papers that were way more recent than any of the stuff that was being presented to me at school. You know, I, we, we take a spine class in, in PT school, actually several of them, two or three, um, musculoskeletal class integumentary class and everything I started noticing that the the research papers that we were being told to read were so outdated so outdated so much more stuff had, had come out after that uh, you know in the in the most recent years and the professors weren't you know and I get it you know they have a full-time teaching gig and they probably also practice and they probably have a family I get why they don't have time to update the research papers that they teach also there's the licensure exam which is a standardized test and I get it it doesn't change every year it changes every how many years 20 I don't even know barely, barely right so I get it I get I get why that is the case but 
it's really frustrating when you have an issue and when you are in pain and the best advice is not being given to you. I don't think that's fair. So I, um, as my back pain kept getting worse and, and, and I started getting more and more frustrated, started doing more reading. And eventually I put together, when I got better, I put together an exercise plan online that I put on my, on, on the hybrid, uh, software that it was, I think it was three months to, to pain-free, uh, three months to pain-free back or bulletproof your back. I forgot what the name that I gave it. And then I realized it was just a bunch of exercises. And the thing with back pain is that it's so much more complex than that. You know, there's the whole perception of pain. There's the whole just understanding the process of healing. There's understanding when to back off, when to not, when to why you're doing each exercise, really understanding the root of your pain, the cause of your pain, understanding that you're not fragile, that you're not inherently unstable, that you're not all these things that are that were told to me by legit therapists and obviously the media and that are just not true, that are so important that we understand when it comes to back pain because it's such a debilitating thing. It's not like knee pain. Back pain is just like, and it's so easy to catastrophize, right? Like you think that you're going to damage yourself or whatever you're not going to walk again who knows so I realized that I needed kind of like an um you know an additional document to that program to explain those things to people and then one page became three became five became eight between 20 became 40 and then I was like all right like this doesn't make any sense as a pdf like obviously no one's gonna read it like that right everyone's gonna say thanks and never read it and just do the program so that's when I decided to uh ask for Ian Kaplan, who's my COO, super smart guy. He's at Cairo. Uh, I asked him to help me co-write it. And we had just such a good flow between the two of us. We had a Google Drive document where we just wrote the table of contents. And the, the principle or the promise we had to one another was that every day we're going to open the document. And we, were, we would hold each other accountable. So it didn't matter if you didn't write anything. What mattered was that you opened the document and you at least thought about it. Right. So there would be times where I would open it and I would delete an entire chapter or there'd be times when I would open it and do absolutely nothing or check for grammatical errors. And there would be times where I would feel really inspired and like have kind of like an aha moment and add, you know, 15 pages more to the document. So we had really good back and forth. Like I feel like I was picking up the slack when when he wasn't inputting much and vice versa. And we finished writing it in like, I don't know, I think. A little bit less than a year took us to write it um, and then we decided to go through the self-publishing route which was a little bit more simple and yeah when got an editor put into production got the copies rest of history you definitely passed the vibe check when it comes to understanding low back pain you you don't you got to understand that we have a lot of people on here and there's some people that just don't make the cut because they're just still like preaching the old stuff my Gosh. my beef with the with the MSK industry is that if you've got low back pain, for example, since we're talking about it, you go to an MD, to a PT, into a chiro. The three of them will give you different recommendations. So they're they're gonna give you all sorts of bullshit diagnoses, and probably none of them will give you like actual guideline based advice, which kind of mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's because they're so focused on, and I talk about it in my book. They're so focused on playing the Sherlock Holmes of injuries. They're so focused on, and I get why, because when you have a person in front of you, they want to know what, what is wrong with them, you know? So 
that's why they get so fixated on what the diagnosis is. But but if even if they just switch their focus from, oh, let me figure out like which vertebra is um, unstable or which one of your exactly your your pars interarticularis is stuck <laughs> open. You know, if we stop looking for that and maybe just focus on, hey, how are you feeling today? You know, uh, hey, what um. You know, what is important for you to do in a day-to-day basis? What brings meaning to your life? Exactly. Exactly. Instead of interrupting patients every 11 seconds. And and also, let's focus on what are the things that the person cannot do and what are the things that the person can do. Let's figure out how to make the person do the things they can't do that they want to do. And let's emphasize the things that they can do instead of the things that they can't do. Literally, it's that simple. Oh, you can't bend over. You can uh, you can't bend over to pick your pick up your son. All right, yeah, that sucks. But what can you do? Can you lift something up in the air? Can you rotate to the left? Cool. We're gonna do more of that, and exactly. and, and empower them. Like let's empower them to do the things that they can do, and not get overly fixated on the things that they can't. I personally found myself like checking how bad my back pain was every second of the day. Is it gone? Is it gone? Or what about this? Oh, does it hurt? Oh. Instead of focusing, oh shit, like, you know, this movement doesn't hurt. I'm going to just do a bunch of that. Eventually, when I understood that, is when my back pain started getting better. You know, back extension was really comfortable for me. So I started doing a bunch of that tricep extensions, back extensions, hip thrust, you know, putting, putting myself, doing as much of that as I could, walking, walking backwards. Yeah, I think Greg Lehman is a fan of that, like, Stop focusing on quote unquote fixing your pain and start focusing like swift your focus and miraculously you get better. <laughs> Just exactly. And the reality also is that time heals it almost exactly all. natural history. Yeah. So no matter, well, I guess yeah. It, I was gonna say no matter what you do, but it, it does matter what you do. It matters more what you don't do than what yeah. you do. From from my thought process, you know, going into like real life practice soon is kind of like if everything, not everything, but the majority of low back strains kind of get better in four to six weeks uh, and you want to come to me, uh, we're just going to work on the things that you're really bad at, like recovery and like, you know, teach you tools that just to be a better human being. So it's kind of like a master class for the next four to six weeks with me versus I'm going to massage this tissue that's going to get better regardless if you were in a bed or doing the things you love, you know? And listen, the, the, I think the hands-on modalities, whether it's like Theragun cupping, soft tissue, ART, dry needling, whatever it is, it has its time and place. You know, there were some there were some times that I was in so much pain that I just needed a little bit of relief. You know, I bought myself a power dot and I would put it on and it would take my pain away for an hour or two. And that was good enough for me at that time. You know, it's not thick, but, but it's the problem is the false claims and advertisements that, that take advantage of people's lack of knowledge. That's the problem. It's when you're promised something and that's not exactly it. And that's not what it does. But if you, I have no problem with therapists doing manual therapy or with therapists recommending these modalities, as long as it's clear, you know, don't tell your client that you're going to rub CBD cream on their shoulder and that's going to fix their pain or whatever. Yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of manual therapy, but I've always said that Manual therapy alone is not the enemy, but no civic narratives are. That's where the big problem yeah, comes. Yeah, especially. Sorry, one more note on the top of, topic of modalities. When you ha- when you're an athlete, and what you need to do, like you you have to keep training. 
sometimes you like that's what you have to do you know i would go to i had a Cairo here that was really good that would do really amazing dry needling with easton and that would allow me to train that day you know so i would go i would get my dry needling my easton i would get some soft tissue work and and that and the next day i would be able to train so i would go like before my heavy sessions you know so sometimes for athletes it's it, it at least enables you to to be able to get your training session in with less pain than if you didn't right so And it exactly. also feels good. <laughs> now, now to change change gears, but it's kind of a perfect segue. Is you know you 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 self published this book and you made like a big uh, post about it on your Instagram, and you noticed that it didn't get as much engagement when you posted that, but you got much more engagement when you started to embrace your femininity. Uh, and then you said that it was going to be your own like so like own social experiment. What did you learn from all that? Well, I'm still learning. It's not done, you know. I'm I'm actually in the process of now doing research for this next book that I want to write. And maybe I'll call it my social experiment, maybe I won't. But yeah, I mean, it's no surprise. I think it's it's I didn't ex I guess I did expect that post to get more, I guess more excitement, you know. Writing a book is no easy fit feat. It's not something that everyone does. It takes so much work and so much effort. It takes money, you know, and just it, it's crazy how it, and to a certain extent it makes me it makes me resent this group of people, you know, girls that that quote unquote have it easy in the sense that they can just, you know, post a picture in a bikini or like open a fans account and just like money rains on them and and, and um exposure, like they get all the exposure they want, they get likes, opportunities, freaking sponsorships you know just based on their their outward appearance so that's kind of what triggered that kind of thought process and, and let me to study it a little bit more and, and there's it's so intricate and convoluted you know just to understand sexualization objectification of females especially like female athletes the female athlete paradox the struggles that female athletes have as far as like that dichotomy that's in your brain about being you know being feminine wanting to be feminine and sexy and wanting to be told that you are feminine and sexy and then the other part that is like you're an athlete you want to be assertive you want to be aggressive you want to be respected you know so all of those things kind of together that book was like really or that post was really eye-opening for me in that sense and and more importantly I realized that it's a topic that's really that really hits home for me and that's important for me to educate people on you know and, and hopefully bring about a change I don't know you know I don't even know if me writing a book and talking about it lecturing about it presenting doing a TED talk on it will change anything but hopefully it'll hopefully maybe it will I don't know do you think it, it the the whole process of you like I'm assuming you you know you're, you're coming out of your shell here by you know embracing this side of yourself and then posting it to your massive following Do you think that this you actually conducting the experiment yourself has benefited you? You know, every time that I posted one of those photos that I that like any of those sexy photos in bikinis or whatnot, I've lost followers, like thousands of them. You know, yeah, the the post itself gets a lot of engagement, but my following is not about that. My followers are not about that at all, which which is, is really cool, right? Like I've, people who have come to my, my page more recently 
don't maybe don't know what I'm about or what I've been about for the last eight or eight to 10 years that I've been on social media, but I've built that following based on honest, honesty, you know, being myself based on honest evidence-based advice on fitness. No, Dexter, bro. Stay down. Based on honest evidence-based advice on, on fitness, you know, um, and just being based on being an athlete, not on showing my tits and ass. You know, that's how I built that following. And that's reflective of the reaction that my followers have anytime I post a picture like that. So I don't know. I think, um, it was, it was an important exercise for me to do because I genuinely thought that posting those pictures would make me feel more empowered. I thought those pictures would make me feel more confident. I thought those pictures would make me feel more validated and more, um, in kind of included into like society as far as like what their expectations are of of females and for me honestly it did the complete opposite like i felt honestly i felt disgusting just the the fact that those pictures were out there and i know that there's like guys jerking off to them or like you know that there's that there's like i don't know like people sharing it because like i look good and then there's and the fact that there's younger girls looking at that picture and wanting to imitate that makes me feel sick to my stomach. But, you know, I wrote that last post and I'll continue posting those pictures just because it grabs people's attention, you know, and it creates conversation. It brings, it brings light to a topic that needs to be spoken about. Um, and, and there's a flip side to all those negative things, right? That's my personal experience posting those. That That's my feelings when I post those things. But the fact that women have now power to do with their media, whatever they want to do, as opposed to 50 years ago, when the only thing that you would see in the media is what the media wanted you to see, that's empowering, you know? So there's always, there's a plus side to everything there's a good there's always the good and the bad side of something and i mean i'm i'm still i don't have a conclusion i feel like every every post that i make is is has kind of a, a a different a different stance but yeah i'm excited to just continue exploring this the book the book that i'm writing is going to have a bunch of uh, interviews you know i want to be able to to interview female athletes that have post nude for magazines you know, I would love to interview like Serena Williams. I would love to interview um, Lindsey Vaughn, the snowboarder that like post naked and got so much heat for it. UFC athletes, uh, boxers that that have been forced to take that route because the sport just doesn't pay female athletes the same, right? So I'm really curious to hear their standpoint and then see what what the research and psychology specifically says. One of my friends, she's a sports psychologist. Nick Cohen is her name, and she's one of the co-writers. So I'm going to have, you know, obviously I'm going to be the storyteller when I do the interviews, but I'm obviously it's still going to be deeply rooted on uh, evidence and scientific facts. Right on. Well, Steffi, yeah, we, we know you're a, a busy woman, and we don't want to take more of your time. So we really appreciate you taking an hour to just chat with us. Um, and just in case people are living under a cave and they don't know who you are where can everyone find you yeah the pleasure is mine yeah you can find me on instagram at steffi cohen or on youtube steffi cohen perfect we'll link that into the show notes just in case just so it's easier for people 
pasa. 